Bibles, please turn to Titus chapter 1. Paul wrote this letter to Titus to set things in order at the churches in Crete because the church is the household of the living God, a pillar and buttress in this world of the truth. And the church can't export what it doesn't have, so to speak. So if the church isn't holding up or if the truth isn't holding up the church and shaping it, if the truth isn't being proclaimed consistently, clearly and faithfully, then the church, to put it simply, is not a church. What makes a church what it is or what determines whether or not it's the church of Jesus Christ is the message it proclaims. If it isn't proclaiming the word of the truth in the gospel, it's nothing more than an organization of like-minded religious people. And such an organization will not be shining any light into this present darkness, not without to the world and not within to its adherence. Order matters because the truth matters. And the truth matters because it's the only way of salvation in the universe. And God ordained that the truth would come to the church most clearly through a group of qualified elders who shepherd the flock of God after his own heart. And that is missing in Crete or on the island of Crete. They're out of order, which means there's no foundation. And that means the truth is clouded in the minds of the people. They had leaders. They had them. But these leaders didn't have a firm enough grasp on the truth to shepherd God's people well in Crete. In fact, The problem is they didn't desire to have a firm enough grasp on the gospel, on the truth. Like the false teachers in Ephesus with 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, they desired gain. That desire made them speculative. It made them legalistic, which means they weren't just bad teachers that meant well. They were bad teachers that meant harm. And Paul has left his associate Titus there to set things Right. Paul commanded that Titus silence the false teachers because their minds and consciences had been so defiled that they were upsetting believers in the church with their doctrine. But the trustworthy word of truth that is fully revealed by the gospel purifies us so that our works glorify God. Let's pray one more time. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and I pray, Lord, that for his name and for your glory, you would make me speak it clearly and correctly. Please overcome me, Father, in all that I am and would do to damage what's here or make it unclear. Father, have your way in me. Please watch over everyone who will hear. Cause them to understand and believe. And I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We have a four at the beginning of verse 10 here. So let me back up just a little bit of verse 9 so we can get his whole thought. In verse 9, the elder, he said, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For, or because there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. False teachers will creep up in every church no matter where or when it is. The Bible tries to warn us that they'll always be among us. They'll always be a problem. As it was in Ephesus for Timothy, so it was in Crete for Titus. These false teachers we find in verse 12, or we will find in verse 12, were native Cretans, and apparently they believed that 
Submission to the Mosaic Law was required for salvation. The circumcision party. This was a similar issue to what Paul dealt with, if you remember, in Galatia. The belief of Judaism that circumcision was required for identity among the people of God. Always remember, false teachers are rarely so dense as to deny the need for Jesus altogether. We'd recognize that right away as error if that's what they said, right? So they have to be deceptive in verse 10. So their doctrine is not no Jesus. Their doctrine is yes, Jesus, but also blank. Jesus and, which is just as heretical and deadly to people's souls as denying Jesus altogether. This attempt to mix the era of law with the era of the gospel was among the most or was the most damaging and dangerous doctrines to the early church along with something called Gnosticism. It's important for us to realize, though, that in reality... There's nothing new under the sun and the false teaching that we're justified by a mix of law, by a mix of obedience and the gospel is still doing great harm to the church in America and to the world in 2021. But this is the reason in Titus for the necessity of verse nine of appointing elders who hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that they can... um, Both teach what is true and rebuke what is wrong because there are many among teachers that are insubordinate. So they flat out deny the truth. They are empty talkers. They're just filled with words, filled with speculation and deceivers. They desire to lead the people astray, especially those, Paul says, of the circumcision party, which is interesting. There's no evidence of a large ethnic Jewish contingency in Crete. And so we take this with verse 12 and verse 14 to mean that he's talking about Cretan believers who have devoted themselves to Judaism also, in addition to their Christianity, and are trying to bring that into the church. In verse 11, they must be silenced. Since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach, they must be silenced. The Greek verb says something way stronger than they must be silenced. That's a very nice way to say what Paul is saying. The verb literally means to put a muzzle on an animal's mouth. Saying, Titus, shut them up is exactly what Paul is saying. Why? What would excuse a preacher for being so impolite? If the teaching of someone was upsetting whole families, in what way were they being upset? Well, You have to figure their teaching was making families doubt their salvation. Remember Paul in Galatians 5.12. I wish those who unsettle you in, in your salvation and in whether or not you belong to the people of God in the context of the letter. I wish those who unsettle you, here you have upset, would emasculate themselves. That's in the Bible. I don't know why... It is such a point of pride or achievement for preachers and teachers and authors and professors to make believers doubt their salvation. It's almost like it's the goal of preaching is to make sure you don't think you're saved when you're not really saved. It's like we fear grace in our preaching, in our teaching. We fear it. We fear talking about it too much because if you talk about it too much, 
people will abuse it. Right? That they, we doubt God's ability to hold on to his people. That's what the problem is. If I can say that, as if we're not careful, judgment will actually triumph over mercy, even though that would literally be twisting the scriptures. The more that is added to believe and you will be saved, the more buts and the more ands we add to the gospel, the more unsettled people become. And the gospel is not meant to be doubted because it doesn't need to be doubted. It is finished. And it doesn't matter what anybody says, whether it's the preacher or not. It doesn't matter. It is finished. The preacher's job is not to threaten the flock all the time or make the flock feel guilty and question themselves all the time. The Holy Spirit is perfectly capable of speaking to God's people through his word. The preacher's job is to shepherd the flock with the word of God. This is the new covenant. Always remember this. There are no curses For God's people in the new covenant. Most reads, if you get to talking to people, are already bruised. Right? People are already doubting it and wondering if they should believe it and struggling with it because of the way their lives are going. And Jesus doesn't break bruised reads. The Holy Spirit will make it clear when correction is needed corporately, in our own lives, but even correction doesn't automatically mean you need a whooping. All the book of Hebrews is about, for example, is the assurance of our salvation because our superior high priest Jesus has bought that for believers. That's what the whole letter is about. So there's a whole letter in the Bible dedicated to this very thing. I believe it's anathema to teach differently. I believe it's a different gospel to teach Differently, There's no qualification here by Paul. You don't hear Paul saying, now, sometimes families need to be upset, but not this time. That, that's not there. They're upsetting whole families. Given the essence of the false teaching in Crete, Paul is furious about this. Muzzle them. Shut them up. Muzzling these false teachers was a necessity because they were an absolute menace. So these aren't just minor difficulties or disagreements. Whole families are having major problems. That's why it's so necessary to appoint qualified elders in every town. Back in verse 5, people's souls are being damaged. Please notice that eldership is for the care of a soul. It's for the care of whole families. Not for their undoing. And only one message, only one truth will not upset. Again, these are not well-meaning men who really want to help, but are actually doing damage. This isn't a situation like where Paul instructs Titus to, to pull these men aside and explain things more accurately to them as Priscilla and Aquila did with Apollos in the book of Acts. It's not like that. These aren't well-meaning teachers that just have bad doctrine. These are bad-meaning teachers that have bad doctrine. And they're teaching false doctrine because, again, they're seeking... Gain. I don't think there's another reason to teach false doctrine than the desire for gain somehow, some way. And beloved, there is great gain in controlling people. Nothing feeds a man's ego like the ability to make people shake in their shoes when he walks into a room or ascends the pulpit as if it can be ascended anyway. We act like that's a good thing. 
right? Like the office of preacher should garner so much respect in the world when Paul called his group fools and the trash of the world. He said they smelled like dung. Dung is the Christian way of saying, you know. <laughs> how, how, how do you get a big head from proclaiming a message that says you're a worm and your only hope is grace? But this is what saves. It's just not what people want to hear. We need saved this morning. And the thing is, it's like we have this desire in us to have the tar beat out of us by the Bible. All right, because we want some skin in the game. We want to feel as though we've accomplished something and we take it seriously, right? Like that's the assurance of salvation, how seriously you take everything. As if we know how serious you have to be about something like Jesus dying on a cross for you and me. When our need is so great, we can't even see our desire to feel guilty as what may be the echo of our own pride. What would you tell your little child if they followed you around all the time begging for a spanking? I, I, I won't believe that you love me, Daddy, unless you beat me. I won't believe that you love me unless you whip me. That would break your heart if you loved your child and the last thing you wanted to do, even when they deserved it, was hurt them, right? That's the last thing you wanted to do. What have I done or said that made you think that? That's what I want to know. What have I said that made you think that's how you'll feel loved? What did I do? What made you think that? Go play with your friends. <laughs> Build some Legos with me. Let's go for a walk or something. But please stop begging for a spanking. That's not the tone of this relationship. Paul knows why these men teach false doctrine, and it makes them absolutely cancerous to the church, to whole families. If elders are in the position of eldership, for the position for the authority, they'll have to teach the kinds of things that keep people fixed on them and will keep people in line, right? That's just natural. And they'll hurt people because they'll teach what expands their power and feeds their egos rather than what settles a human soul. That has to be my goal. That has to be the preacher's goal and the teacher's goal. Let the Holy Spirit, who knows all, God the Holy Spirit, figure out when people need corrected. Preach the truth. The truth corrects. Don't add to it. That's what they were doing. But if you say jump and people say how high, it feels really good. It feels really good. Shameful gain. Remember that. Remember, it's any gain. The elders desire that isn't the crown that Jesus will give to those who have shepherded his flock faithfully back in or over in first Peter five. Paul knew these men, even one of their own countrymen was on to these men. Look at verse 12. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Well, that's a way to make friends in Crete, right? 
One of the early church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, credited the Cretan philosopher Epimenides with this quote about his own countrymen. He was a highly regarded religious teacher in Crete from the 6th century B.C. But at least the first, the amazing thing, at least the first part of this quote actually appeared way earlier in this work called A Hymn to Zeus by Callimachus, but it was a proverbial phrase even before that. The thing to notice here is that Paul calls Epimenides a prophet, which means not that he was a prophet of God, but that Paul is giving credence to the authority of his assessment of the people in Crete. He was prophetic. They had a notorious reputation in the ancient world. That's how their name was known. Again, when you hear it now, when you hear somebody say Cretan now, it's not a good thing if people still use that word. The verb in this culture, to cretize, kretizine, if that's how you say it, was slang for cheating or lying in Greek culture. That's what they were known by. Now, obviously, it's a proverb, which means it isn't meant to be strictly applied all the time. Right? How would Paul find, or Titus find elders who were above reproach if every Cretan, without exception, was like this, if every Cretan was always a liar, then why believe Epimenides about Cretans, right? Paul doesn't use the proverb because no Cretan could ever be godly. He uses it because the false teachers were giving credence to the proverb. It's very interesting that Paul uses it at all. It's a stereotype. But I think that him using it is meant for us to see that that's how exclusively true the gospel is. The gospel proves everything right about human beings. Both the obvious and undeniable and even the sweeping generalizations. There's truth there. In other words, the reason these false teachers have perverted the gospel is not because the message is ever insufficient to address the needs of culture, and so you just have to tamper with it because it's so insufficient, we are always insufficient to address the actual needs of culture because we don't know culture or people's hearts as God does. Therefore, we tamper with it. Right? We don't trust it. We don't trust the power of the gospel as enough to do the work of saving people. We always think it needs assistance. You have to sweeten it. You have to find the perfect way to say it because... We're liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons, you name it. So we think, yeah, you've got to change this message. This testimony is true in verse 13. These men are acting like this. Look at the second part of 13 and 14. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. In other words, because that's who they are, rebuke them sharply. So Epimenides was right. He just wasn't completely right. Something can be done about this, in other words. Paul wants Titus to rebuke them sharply so that they would be sound in their faith. That's attainable. The truth is powerful enough to accomplish that rather than them being unhealthy and incorrect and upsetting to people. Meaning they can be sound in the faith. If the truth is what rebukes a person, if the truth is what shapes a person, right, then it's, well, sometimes a person's culture apparently will make it harder for them to be faithful. Soundness in Crete will be difficult, generally speaking, because of how most Cretans are, but it will not be impossible 
Paul is saying, Beloved, for with God, nothing will be impossible. Remember? I wonder, when we talk about how apparently different cultures have a harder time with soundness, I wonder if the ease of being a Christian in America, other than occasionally getting teased on Saturday Night Live maybe, has actually made it harder for us to hear the Scriptures properly. We tend to bend everything so that it just happens to fit with the desires we have for America. Rather than letting the Scripture stand as written mainly to a suffering and sojourning and marginalized people who have no home in this world and will be reviled because of Christ. We try to use the Bible to make us the opposite of that. Just as different personalities have different temptations, different cultures have different temptations, apparently. And Paul is simply reminding Titus that in Crete they'll have to fight a little harder, maybe than some other places, for qualified elders, for soundness in teaching. They, they can't give heed to Jewish myths. That's, that's a key to what kind of heresy this was. Right? It's much like the myths and endless genealogies in 1 Timothy 1, 4. That encouraged speculation about the truth and the addition of more rules. Because, again, it's filled with the commandments of people who turn away from the truth here in verse 14. Paul shows his hand a little bit about his main point here. There are commandments. In other words, there are commandments. There's a specific way of approaching the Christian life that is the result, no matter how pious it looks, of turning away from the truth. Commandments just feel right. right? The, the, the more there are, the better we feel about trying to keep them. We assume we have to be on the right path if we're just transfixed on doing commandments. And the more you can have, the better. They feel Christian. It feels Christian because of how we've defined Christian often in our head. Live this way, not that way. Give me more of that. And yet they can come from denying the truth, not from being more passionate about it. Do we see, do we see the point Paul is always making? When we depart from the purity and centrality of the gospel, the trustworthy word as taught in verse 9, we become frantic, we become unsure, we become upset in verse 11. So we add commands to our Christianity, more, 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 so that by keeping them, we can bolster our assurance. And they're built on lies. Our flesh will always default to the belief that somewhere along the line, yeah, grace saves you, but somewhere along the line, you have to do something to earn it, or at least to keep it, as though all Jesus does is get you in the door, staying in the house is up to you. That's how I was raised. Not necessarily by my mom and dad so much, but by the church I was in and was a part of. Grace is for entrance. You have to endure to the end on your own works and by your own flesh in order to be finally saved. But I think most Christians, no matter what church they're raised in, default to thinking that. I think that's what we really believe deep down inside. And often preaching doesn't help that. It feeds it and makes it worse. 
That's how you upset people then. How do you upset them? Well, you make light of grace and make much of them and their improvement and their works. That's what you do. That's how you keep them needing you. How can they live if they aren't getting the rules from you? How can they live if you don't approve of their actions, if you don't think much of them? You feed that desire to earn by lessening the centrality of grace. You don't deny the need for it. You don't deny the need for Jesus. You just add to it. You domesticate grace until you sound like a Pharisee when you talk instead of Jesus. Why, why are we obsessed with other people's sinfulness? Why? Why do we find it so shocking that the world that is suppressing the truth and unrighteousness is increasingly evil? Why are we so vexed by the decline of morality in our culture? I'm not saying it's, you don't want to be, don't worry about it. That's not what I mean. I'm saying why do we act like it's such a shock? Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So when you see sin, you see a place where Jesus is needed. Right? That, that's what you see. That's what we see. Oh, they must need the gospel there. Right? Not, they need to get better. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not, hey, you're going to hell. That's not the gospel. Right? We think you can scare people into the kingdom with a really powerful illustration. These false teachers have encountered the truth before. They knew it. Paul had been there. Titus was there. They had heard the trustworthy word is taught, preached to them, but they had deemed it insufficient. They wanted gain. And again, you don't gain anything by preaching a message that doesn't puff you up or make much of your effort or your potential people's ears. It's for that. And preachers may find that there is great gain in scratching them. The biggest churches in America preach the same exact message. Paul doesn't want to cast these men out altogether, though. He, he wants them to be silenced and then corrected so that their doctrine is sound. That's what would be best for the church in Crete. There's one faith. One It comes to us from the apostles who got it from Jesus, who simply proclaimed the fulfillment of what God had already promised all throughout the Old Testament. Paul is saying to Titus, to the elders there, the leaders there, be sound in that. Add nothing to it. Don't adjust it. It doesn't need improved upon. It just needs proclaimed. Spurgeon said that very popular saying, the truth is like a lion. It doesn't need defending. It needs unleashed and it will defend itself just fine. False teachers always give commands. They always create rules. But the truth doesn't need more rules. What's here is sufficient to preserve the faith, inform the knowledge, and strengthen the hope of God's elect. Back in verses 1 through 4. The truth needs no additional shoulds. That's 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 how you know you're hearing it. Right? When when people start speculating, well, yeah, I mean, I guess you can, but should you? Why do you get to ask that question of me or vice versa? Who made you the self-proclaimed voice of the Holy Spirit in the life of other believers? Can you, but should you? That's an irrelevant question. If you can, if God has said you can, then stop. Stop. Trust the truth. 
to wander from it is upsetting to whole families. And I love the fact that Paul makes a point to say whole families. Whole families, even the kids. Even the kids. Why do we teach our children to be so afraid of messing up? Why do we make them think that if they make certain mistakes, God probably won't like them anymore? And their whole life will be horrible because of what they did. Maybe it's because we honestly think fear is what saves. Guilt is what has power. And it does, my goodness. But not the power for salvation. We teach kids to think that Christianity is basically just another word for morality. Right? Instead of the message of rescue for immoral people. The gospel is for sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Who are we talking to? What are we saying? The gospel's for weary moms. And browbeaten wives and husbands stretched so thin they can barely think straight and feel like they're never going to be enough for their kids. It's for kids who don't know where to turn, don't know how to understand anything. It's for teenagers who've lost their virginity and don't know who they are. You know how these young people are being assaulted with differing worldviews today? Forget about, I'm not talking about politics. Forget about that for a minute. You know how many young people today question their identity, question their sexuality? They don't know where to turn. They don't know what to do. Not because they're stupid. Because they're just young. We were all young. You know how hard the world is when you're young? It's not more hard than when you're old. It's just a different hard. And, and, We have this gospel. It's for grandparents who've entered the late stages of their lives and now they're alone or despondent or maybe so bored they don't know what to do. They just feel like they're going to die. We can go on and on and on. The point is that apparently the gospel was set up to bring a word of comfort and truth that settles the souls of the whole family. And if the church that bears the name of Jesus is characterized mainly by upsetting people all the time, it doesn't have the spirit of Jesus. And if those that preach or teach a class can't convey that message consistently, they have no business preaching or teaching. The media, Hollywood, the music industry, academia, they are all in the business of telling people they aren't enough. That's how they stay popular. That's how they stay relevant. That's how they get rich. And so the message in a million ways is always, you're not enough. You don't have enough. You could be better. You could be skinnier. You could be prettier. You could be handsomer. You could be more fit. You could be more successful. And on and on and on it goes. And here sits the gospel. It's the only hope there has ever been. It's the only hope left for people who don't have enough. Maybe... 
maybe we, we could look in the mirror as a church and just ask, right? Or get over ourselves for just a minute and realize that maybe people aren't leaving the church always and only because they have this ravenous appetite for immorality. Sure, that's the case often. But maybe just as much or more often, maybe they leave here because the message they hear from the pulpit doesn't differ from what they hear from the world. Be better, do better, get better, be a better wife, be a better husband, be a better teenager, be a better student, be a better, it just always do, 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 get better, get better, get better, get better. There's nothing wrong with getting better, wanting to succeed, wanting to do better, nothing wrong with it. Beloved, it doesn't save. And we are in the saving business. We're Jesus people. Read the, read the Bible. Read the Gospels. Listen to Him. Who was He always threatening? And who did He never threaten? Who was He always miffed at? And who was He always kind to? Are we like this or is it flipped? If we aren't attracting the same people Jesus attracted, maybe we aren't preaching the same message Jesus preached. Can't even see that we may be denying God with our works. Because that's what Paul's going to say here. It's unbelievable. Look at these last three verses this morning. This is the heart of the whole text. Listen to this. Verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, we have to hear these verses in the context of the letter. In what Paul is saying, look at verse 15 again, right? To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Now, first of all, is Paul saying that to someone who is pure, adultery is pure. Everything's pure. You can do whatever you want. Not at all. That's not remotely his point. He's talking about how what we believe informs what we do. How belief, faith informs works. He's talking about whether that's for the good or for the ill. If we're pure, and again, how does one become pure? What is he talking about? What purifies a sinner? The blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. Faith in Christ purifies a person. And to the pure, all things are pure. Meaning, to those who are in Christ, they are not defiled inside. Meaning, that to the false teachers who do not trust in, believe in, or teach the trustworthy word as it was taught to them, they do not proclaim the word of truth, the gospel. To them, everything is impure and therefore must be purified. But not by grace, not by the truth. Everything must be purified by their works. 
To the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In other words, everything needs washed by me in order to become pure. The more defiled a person is, the more things they will be afraid of. And the more rules they will create to protect themselves rather than trusting in the power of the gospel. They are not free. Even their consciences are defiled. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Think about that phrase. That means their minds are defiled. And again, what defiles a person? It's not what goes into him. It's what comes out of him. Their minds are defiled by their lack of belief to the degree that their consciences are affected negatively by it. So they never have peace. They never believe that faith alone, apart from works, justifies the sinner. Everything they do defiles their conscience. So they live in a constant state of fear of what they have done. Did I mess up? Did I go too far? Have I done enough? Have I done too much? Doesn't this sound exactly like what it would mean to be upset? Isn't that what Paul is referring to specifically? When instead of constantly hearing the trustworthy word is taught... The word that saves, the word of the gospel, instead of that word, we get a steady diet of, really, you should be doing this and not be doing that, and uh, what about this and what about that, and, and have you considered this? That There was an article a while back about whether or not it was a sin to use your iPad as your Bible. That was a real article. Do you know what that does? It upsets me. Should I, be, should I not read verses on my iPad? Oh my gosh, I'm... Not honoring God because I'm using my iPad at work, like on my lunch break to look at the Bible because I, I didn't bring my Bible. Am I, am I sinning? Should I, should I take more, should I have a bigger Bible? Should my Bible be thick enough to like choke a mule so that people know how serious I am about my faith? Like what, what do I do? Where's the verse on iPads? What, what do I do here? Where's, where does it tell me how to behave with my iPad? Oh, it's not in here, but I mean, they wrote it on this website. It has to be true. Just, You defiled your iPad. You defiled your desire to read. You defiled everything. Now it's a matter of conscience. Now you're violating your own conscience and you didn't even need to. Have you been this? Have you been that? Have you done this? Have you done that? When that's the way we're thinking, we'll not be cleansed. How could you ever be clean? We will be increasingly defiled in the way we think and in our consciences to the point that we're frantic. We never have peace. We never have joy. Because we draw our salvation from our works no matter what we say with our mouths. Again, you're not going to probably ever hear anybody say you're actually saved by works. You can't say that because it's so obvious that it's wrong. What you can do is not... Constantly proclaim that you're saved by grace and constantly focus on your behavior until in your mind you think it's your behavior that saves and grace is somewhere like it did something. And you're actually defiling everything because you've made everything a matter of whether or not you're saved. What did Jesus bleed for? What is finished? Look at verse 16. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Now, when you read that, do we really think that the false teachers here, given their description, 
were just out of control, obviously glaringly unchristian, right? No, the Pharisees weren't like that. And Jesus called them, I mean, Jesus called them horrible names. Vipers and whitewashed tombs. And I mean, it just never stopped with those guys. Because inside they're full of bones and excess. No, beloved, they, we have to hear it in context. They were devoted to learning. They were so devoted, they were creating more commands to live by. Remember that when you read verse 16. So they didn't look detestable and disobedient to the naked eye. But we don't judge by appearances. God doesn't judge by appearances. Yes, the unbelieving and impure, those defiled in both mind and conscience are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But how? Why? How are they unfit for good works? They can't do any. They can't do any. Nothing the defiled and unbelieving do is good, beloved. We can do nothing that glorifies God when we don't believe the trustworthy word as taught. The Bible has a phrase for works like that. It's not nice. It's not clean. Everything is defiled because we're defiled by not believing. Is what Paul is saying of this group. Everything is defiled because they're defiled by not believing. It's not what goes into a man that defiles him. That's not how they were becoming defiled. Jesus in Mark 7 and Matthew has already declared how a person becomes undefiled. It is not by what they're doing. It is not by what goes into them that a person is defiled. You and I have to read defiled, defined by Jesus. What defiles a person? Not what goes into him, but what comes out of him. Consider the meaning of Paul then in light of that here. Additional rules and additional regulations are the MO of the people he's describing here. Not philanderers. Those type additional rules and regulations are piled up by those that don't believe the gospel is sufficient. What does that come from? Doubt. Unbelief. A lack of confidence in Christ. That is so defiling in my heart that everything and anything that comes out of me, whether it's good or not, is defiled by the unbelief. They can't do anything that pleases God because all their work, all their effort comes from the flesh. And Paul says in Romans that in the flesh dwells nothing good. The less we believe the gospel, the more impure Everything becomes. Think about it. Can't go there. Can't go there. Can't eat that. Can't drink that. Can't like that. Can't hang out with them. Can't wear that. Can't listen to that. Can't, 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 can't. No talk of Jesus. No talk of What's the testimony of a person like that? I used to be a mess. And then I came to Jesus and now I'm a much better person. And you can be too. That's the gospel. That's Christ crucified for sinners. It's weird that it doesn't sound like that. It sounds like Jesus is the, is the way to improvement, not the Savior, not just for 
people that can be improved, but people that can't. Can't go there, can't eat that, can't drink that, can't like that, can't hang out with them, can't wear that, can't listen to that, can't, until we honestly believe that the proof of our salvation, the proof that it's real, is not Jesus dying on the cross. The proof that it's real is everything we're doing or not doing. And again, Jesus and his cross are somewhere in the story. Right? Somewhere necessary to get in the family, but unnecessary to stay in the house. That's up to you. All that Jesus did and you have to prove it. It's very strange. 2-1, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. Paul goes right from being unfit for any good work to what is being taught. Why? Because the truth, the word of truth, does not defile anything. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Is this saying that they say they know God, but really they're like adulterers, for example. They're hypocrites. Not in context. The fact that the impure here are false teachers who need sound doctrine implies that they're overly zealous for performance, not lax on it. So they weren't just against adultery, for example. In First Timothy, false teachers were taking it one step further. Since adultery is a sin, we'll forbid marriage also. Don't get married, that way you can't commit adultery. Problem solved. Right? It, 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 you add on to it. And when our wisdom is creating the rules, we weren't meant, we can't discern all the time between good and evil. Remember the garden? That was God's prerogative, not ours. We ate the fruit, corrupted it, and now we think we can determine what's right and wrong. No, God determines what's right and wrong. He'll say something is fine. Jesus will declare all foods common. And you have Christians today, I don't know if you should eat pork or not. I just don't know. I'm eating bacon. Right? I mean, you understand. Jesus declared all foods common. End of discussion. Yeah, but what about that? Declared all foods clean. They're clean. That's what the word does. It cleans. It purifies. That which is not the word of the truth defiles everything. That, that's, that's what Paul's talking about in Colossians. That, that's what they did in Colossians. It, it sounds like wisdom. Well, if, if the potential to sin is in that thing, then maybe you shouldn't even do that thing. If, if you could, might commit adultery because you can't stop lusting, then maybe you should, maybe we should forbid marriage altogether. Well, that sounds wise. Well, I guess, yeah, maybe that would make sense. But then Paul says, no, it sounds like wisdom. That's why it corrupts. It, it has the ability to hold power over people. It doesn't sound stupid. It, go ahead, jump out of a plane. You can fly. Right? It doesn't sound like that. It sounds like, well, maybe, maybe I shouldn't. You know, maybe. But it, it, Paul, like the Bible's so clear, it doesn't do anything. Additional rule to stop the indulgence of the flesh. That's not the way cleansing of the flesh works. It's not cleansed by works. It's cleansed by faith in Christ who purifies everything. How does one deny God by his works? Especially if they're technically doing a work the Bible calls good. Notice that they don't deny God with their mouths. They deny him by their works. So their works have a God-denying quality about them. We deny God by our works when our works ignore Him. 
when we deny what God has done and do our works by our own reason and in our own strength, especially works that we have made up and determined are therefore good. I mean, this, this goes so, the rabbit hole goes so deep. I remember one time being in junior church and I put my Bible on and I put some papers on it and I thought the junior church teacher was going to kill me. You do not put papers on your Bible. Okay. I won't do it again, but again, well, because you should, that's what we do with life. Does the Bible say you can't put papers on the, the mass produced thing that you got? No. So don't make a rule. What are we doing? What are we doing? Because no, notice the opposite of this in 2.1. Notice how 16 goes into 2.1. Being fit for good works that obviously don't deny God is a matter of what accords with sound doctrine. So the problem is not in the works, it's in what is being taught and believed. Beloved, that is the reason for why we're doing what we're doing. Works that are done to prove one's goodness are like filthy rags. They're disgusting. They're defiled. They're detestable. Even if they're technically good. Right? That, that, when Isaiah talks about your works of righteousness are, are, are filthy rags, understand the works. He's not talking about the bad things you do. He's talking about the things you do that are good that God won't accept as the means of your salvation. Those are disgusting. Those are dirty. Right? Even if they're technically good. When, when, a, when a person who hates Jesus and denies that he's the Savior donates a couple million dollars to charity, which is a wonderful thing to do, I'm not decrying that, but when they do that and they're a person who hates Jesus and denies that he's the Savior and they do it because they want to be a good person, do we think that ingratiates them to God? Do you think he knocks a few years off the sentence based on how much money you give? All good works that are done to prove one's goodness are the stench of Christ-denying, self-justification, rather than the pleasing aroma of the sacrifice of Christ that deems both my good works and my sins as reasons I am unable to save myself. They're detestable and disobedient. They're not denying God only by doing bad works. They're denying God by doing good works without faith in Christ that realizes the works accomplish nothing for my personal salvation. Every work you do is payment is detestable. So Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Why? What does that have to do with truly good works? So that they might hear the truth and believe and their works will then be pleasing to God. Works that come from faith rather than from unbelief and fear. Remember Paul. Whatever. Doesn't matter if it's good or bad. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Romans 14, 23. That's a game-changing verse. Whatever does not come from faith is sin, which means on my best day, I'm sinning to some degree all the time. Christ better be a good Savior. Right? That's the message. Because He is. Because He is. 
if our best works, the best things we do, our attempts to earn our salvation, because we believe we need to add to what Christ has done, then the better or more exemplary or praiseworthy the work, the more offensive it is to the cross of Christ, the more it denies the necessity of Christ alone, the more I trust in it to make me good. Good works accord with sound doctrine because that doctrine, the trustworthy word is taught, purifies the mind from the guilt and unbelief that makes us unfit for any good work. In the scripture, remember 2 Timothy 3.17, we'll find everything we need for good works. There's no need to add to those works with speculation about what is good. Speculation unsettles. The gospel does not unsettle. It makes you stand firm. The fact that the word is sufficient to teach what good works are means that that's what the false teachers lack. They lack a knowledge of scripture. They lack the correct understanding of the Bible. They aren't in the Bible enough. They're in themselves too much. And look at verse 9 again. That's the issue, isn't it? You cannot put in an elder who doesn't, who isn't sold out to grace. He'll kill the body. Beloved, consider, I'm, I'm almost done here. I know it's long this morning. I gotta get this out. Alright? Just consider Hebrews 9, 13 and 14 for a moment in light of Titus 1 here. Listen to this. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Good works, according to the flesh, are dead. Right? They're dead works. They're not accomplishing anything. They don't cleanse. No matter how much of them we do or how good our intentions. Apart from faith in Christ, we are still defiled. We cannot be our own priests. But Christ, who was perfect, who was not defiled, offered himself to God for us as a substitute, not just to absorb wrath, in our place, but to perform righteousness in our place actually cleanses our conscience from these dead works. Now, what does that mean? Dead works are the result of a defiled conscience. My conscience makes them worthless. Christ comes in, cleanses my conscience with his blood so that my good works which could be the same good things I did before I knew him, are no longer defiled, but are now in Christ, through Christ, through his blood, through his righteousness, not defiled, but holy and acceptable to God. A work is not pure until it is washed in the blood of Christ and cleansed of all its insufficiency, unbelief, and arrogance. My works need cleansed of the belief that they're accomplishing my salvation or they are defiled by that inability to believe and my dead conscience. 
Now look back in Titus 1.15. These false teachers are unfit for good works. Why? Because their consciences are defiled. They lack faith in Christ is the problem. Only the gospel, the word of truth, cleanses the conscience. Right? Only that makes us pure. Only when we believe can we actually do good works that glorify God and not ourselves. Right? What does it look like for my child to be thankful for a Christmas gift? Well, they play with it and enjoy it. You say thank you, you're supposed to. When I'd open a pair of socks from my grandparents, I get that stink eye from my dad, you say thank you. <laughs> thank you. I didn't want a toy, I wanted these socks. Right? That's not what Christianity is. Oh, thank you. Oh, just you just swim in the river of grace. God will take care of the rest. God will take care of the rest. Until we believe all our works, even the good ones, will be efforts at self-salvation, which will defile literally everything we try to do. Works are defiled by the conscience, and the conscience can only be undefiled by the blood of Christ, which means the fight in us, beloved, is really the fight for faith, not the fight for works. As goes the faith, so will go the works. Don't worry about it. Those will come as belief increases in direct relation to the soundness of the doctrine we hear preached to us. When we're being cleansed constantly by the word and informed more and more of the greatness and the goodness of Christ, the works coming out of me are just the fact that I enjoy the fact that I'm saved. Let me serve you. I'm taken care of. Right? So the pressing burden for the apostles all the time is what is being preached in these churches. Thus the letter to Titus. Thus the word right now to you and I, Moundsville Baptist Church. Right now, this word lives. To those who are made pure by Christ, everything is pure. Meaning that what comes out of them is not defiled by the flesh. To those who are not pure, that is, who don't believe the gospel, who doubt the sufficiency of Jesus to save, everything is potentially impure and therefore must be avoided. So I live by what I do and don't do rather than by Christ who saves. Nothing comes from faith in Christ in that equation. Therefore, nothing is cleansed. Everything is defiled. Beloved, it's unbelief that will lead you most quickly to fear and sin. When you wallow in guilt and don't repent, you know what you do? You keep sinning. Right? It just gets worse. What difference does it make? I'm totally worthless and you just keep sinning. I'm not making fun of you. It's a horrible feeling to have. Our minds have to be shaped by the word of truth. The trustworthy word is taught, the deposit, the gospel, or there will be no good works. And Titus is about that because the truth of what Jesus has provided for sinners in the gospel is adorned and displayed by good works. The trustworthy word of truth that is fully revealed by the gospel purifies us so that our works glorify God. Only Jesus makes us undefiled. Believer, Church, struggling saint, saint standing tall, 59 minutes and 19 seconds, your sins are forgiven. Jesus paid it all.
You've been cleansed. You are righteous. Your name is written down in heaven. There's nothing to fear. It is finished. It is finished. You are free to love and serve one another. You are free to love and serve your neighbors. And you and I are free to love and serve our enemies. That's how good the gospel is. That's how free and clear it makes me. You and I now need nothing from anyone. We can give everything away and only gain. This is Christ for you and me. This is what Christ has accomplished. Why would you ever think you're the one that is the exception that just makes all that untrue? Come to Jesus. Come sinners, poor and needy. Come with me because I'm in that line. Come to Jesus. He is for us. He is for you. He is for you. Believe in him. The rest will follow. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word of truth that comes to us in Christ. Lord, I praise you for all that you provided for us. I thank you this morning for the patience of everyone here. Lord, I pray that as we go, we not forget the truth of Jesus Christ that saves and keeps the Holy Spirit that abides and that produces his fruit in the life of all who believe. Let us not doubt. Let us press on. Watch over us. Watch over our community. Watch over our state in the days and weeks to come. We ask and pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.